Welcome to the Gold Exchange Podcast, where we untangle market and policy complexity using timeless economic principles. For show notes and archives, go to goldexchangepodcast.com. Now, on to today's episode. Welcome back to the Gold Exchange Podcast. My name is Benjamin Adelstein from Monetary Metals. We are coming at you from the 2022 New Orleans Investment Conference. I'm joined, as always, by Monetary Metals founder and CEO, Keith Weiner, And we are delighted to be joined by Peter Bookbar of Weekly Financial Group and the Book Report. So, Peter, let's get into it. Let's dive straight in. Interest rate hikes in 2022. Do you see them continuing or are we going to pivot? What are your thoughts? Through the next two meetings, they'll definitely continue, and we'll probably see another 100 to 125 basis point increases split up between the two remaining meetings. Then we'll see what happens in 2023 based on how the, the economy plays out in response to this, where the unemployment rate goes, and so on. But the Fed wants to get the Fed funds rate to 4% plus, and they'll do that the next two meetings. Keith, do you agree? What do you think? 2022, stay the course? Yeah, they've definitely said they're going um, to they're, they're hike. To me, you know, they're causing a lot of, or precipitating a lot of damage, but they're like in this ivory tower on the hundredth floor, so they see all the little people down below as like ants, and the flames have to rise to the height of their window for them to, to pay attention to it. And the question is, when do we get to the point where they notice, hey, we've we've caused a lot of problems, and now we're gonna be forced to, they're gonna be forced to pivot. The question is when, probably not. Forced to pivot, just a question of when. Well, it's when, but what causes the pivot? Is it a market disruption like the Bank of England experienced, or is it going to be a rise in the unemployment rate or a combination? So yeah, at some point they'll stop hiking and at some point they'll end their QE. It's just a question of what also what the, what the trigger is for that. But it's inevitable that they eventually stop, just as they always do uh, uh, in response to their tightening. Well, let's talk about that kind of key indicator. What is that key indicator that market should be looking for and what do you think the Fed is looking as their key indicator? Keith, let's maybe start with you. I like to look at the spread between junk and uh, treasury yields. So there's something called the Bank of America Merrill Lynch option adjusted spread, but people like to look at what is the J and K or TLT minus J and K. Um, But no matter which one you're looking at, you're seeing are the credit spreads for poor quality companies blowing out which means that defaults are coming, which means holes in balance sheets are coming, which is, uh, I mean, I agree with Peter, there's a lot of different things that could precipitate the Fed pivoting, but that would be one of them. If all of a sudden you start to see real carnage um, in credit land, that's what I'd be looking at. And Peter, what about you? Maybe a key indicator that they're looking for for a sign of this pivot? It'll be that, it'll be the unemployment rate if it gets to 5% plus, and it will be disorderly uh, behavior in the uh, U.S. Treasury market. Right, right, right. And what about a key indicator that's seemingly overhyped? Everyone's looking at this, but what is it really telling us? Maybe a key indicator that's overhyped, Keith? CPI inflation. CPI inflation, okay. Because there are so many non-monetary forces with lockdown and whiplash and trade war in Ukraine that it isn't, you know, it isn't necessarily of the Fed's making and everyone's hyper-focused on it. And then the Fed itself is like, oh, we're going to hike interest rates. What, to fix the shortfall of, of commodities that used to come from Ukraine that obviously all the exports ceased. Right. How can interest rates possibly fix that? Peter, what do you think? Uh, I mean, I think the data points are important, but I think people have to analyze them in terms of the context in which they're reported. Is it leading 
is it a leading indicator? Is it just telling us what already happened that is not relevant to what's going to happen? So I think that's what people need. They can't just look at a number and, and, and in, in isolation. Because a lot of these data points capture, like I said, what's happened. And a lot of times they don't quickly adjust to what's currently happening that there's a lag in the reporting. So I think people, like the, the unemployment data is a lagging indicator in terms right. of how it follows economic activity. So we can't just look at it in, in isolation. We have to understand that decisions on hiring and firing people happen well after uh, a direction in economic activity has taken place. Yeah, Keith, let's talk about unemployment for a sec. Seemingly, you know, okay, I'm, I'm scared at the moment. The numbers aren't too volatile. What do you think? Unemployment in the future, 2022 and 2023 going forward? Yeah, I think it's inevitably going to have to rise, both by the stated theory, the mainstream theory, we have to destroy demand in right. order to get consumer prices down. Well, how do you destroy demand? Render people unemployed, right? But um, a space that I follow very closely is, you know, capital markets, uh, availability to early stage companies, because that's where the growth in, in employment is. Mature businesses are always increasing efficiencies and therefore, if anything, shedding workers, but it's the new up and coming companies that are really creating the opportunities and the jobs. Well, funding for those companies has basically seized up as of sometime last spring or maybe early summer. So those companies are being told, get the cash flow positive, They've done modest layoffs, so you're not going to really see that in the unemployment number yet. But um, as some of those companies begin to run out of runway, they're going to be forced to close and lay off their entire workforces. You know, that's very much a lagging, you know, like the capital market closes as a result of tightening. How long does it take before you see huge amounts of layoffs in er from early stage companies? It could be six to 12 to 18 months before they run out of runway and finally, you know, just pull the plug. Um, and I, I don't think that really has largely uh, hit yet. Right, so I wanna talk about zombie corporations for a second. So these are companies whose profit is less than their interest expense. And obviously with interest rate hikes, that really puts a lot of these zombie corporations on the chopping block. Unfortunately, some of these zombie companies are actually employing people, right? They might not be the healthiest companies, but they do employ people. So with interest rate hikes really kind of slaying some of these zombies, where do you see the unemployment numbers? And is that something that the Fed is gonna be taking into consideration? Well, when, when money is easy, when rates are at zero and there's QE, you know, all you need is a heartbeat and a PowerPoint presentation and you can raise money. Right. So when the cost of capital goes up, then obviously everything changes and investors become more discriminating in terms of what they're going to finance and what they're not. So business models that exist when rates are at zero, uh, they don't exist when, when the cost of money is higher. And now the, the, the strong business models separate themselves from the weak ones. And that's what happens in, in, in economic cycles in a downturn. It's just, it's the creative destruction that goes on. This obviously, this cycle is, is unique in that we're going from a time period of extraordinarily easy monetary policy to a very short uh, pivot to the other side. So there's going to be things that break. But the Fed is obviously um, trying to regain their, their inflation credibility and are willing to risk you know, those accidents. It's just a matter of how many accidents and how much damage needs to take place before they take a step back. Right. And I think the other thing you want to think about is that if this kind of going back to easier monetary policy is inevitable, if this interest rate is going back down, 
Keith, you talk about people are stateful, right? They remember it's not that the same trick works twice in a row. If we go back to this position, are, how are markets going to react to what would be QE or a falling interest rate? Well, um, depending on how long this goes, if, if a lot of those early stage companies and also to Peter's point, companies that uh, either their business model or their competitive situation, they couldn't make any money, if they fold and then you flood the market with the excess liquidity, well, all those sinks for that liquidity aren't there anymore. So what does it do? It goes into treasury bonds and maybe real estate or maybe the next um, non-fungible token craze or whatever. Um, and then it will take years for, um, uh, you know, I, I like your phrase, uh, a heartbeat and a PowerPoint. It'll take years for people to muster up the, the PowerPoints and the heartbeats to, you know, to, to go and create the next uh, bubble and whatever the next emerging, um, you know, startup craze is going to be. But it doesn't, it doesn't happen instantly. And if you pour all that stimulus on, on the corpses of dead companies, it doesn't, you know, if you'd done it six months earlier, you might have gotten the effect. But six months later, it's kind of too late. Well, let's talk about this. We've kind of created a bubble economy. Some people say, you know, it's the bubble of everything. What are some of the worst assets that performed in 22 that might have surprised you? And what do you see in 2023 that people are still on this bubble bandwagon? Well, gold and silver have been the major disappointments for the last couple of years right. in, in this kind of environment. So that's what surprised me, that the markets are going down, that bonds are selling off, that other assets are repricing shouldn't surprise anybody when you see a sharp rise in the cost of capital and a sharp rise in the dollar. Now, of course, higher interest, uh, uh, interest rates and the stronger dollar, yeah, you can say, okay, that's a negative for gold and silver, but just how everyone's running to the dollar while that physical currency is getting debased and devalued with inflation and not running to something that has maintained its purchasing power for 5,000 years is a little bizarre to me. But, you know, I know how markets work and, and the algos get triggered when you, you see a rally in the dollar and rise in rates and uh, a rise in real rates. And this is what you get. But that's what surprised me. Keith, gold and silver, we, we have the gauntlet laid down for us. Obviously, at Monetary Metals, we're about paying a yield on gold and silver, so we're less worried about the price and more about earning clients' ounces. But let's talk about the price of gold and silver. Not, not really budging recently. Yeah, I was going to say that an interesting thing is that, and I was writing about this for a few months, how silver went into backwardation as it had sold off in the previous round. And every drop in price, the backwardation was increasing. And that's subsided. It's like whatever buying pressure of the physical was driving that has, you know, not gone away, but decreased, uh, you know, significantly in, in volume. Um, and now, you know, you have both metals kind of returning to a normal condition as the prices come down, which means, you know, maybe they're, you know, at least in the short term, the indicator is kind of saying there's no real driver for a sharp upward price. Now, that said, what I think is going on, particularly in gold, is I think there's a huge amount of buying because I think a lot of people are looking at what every central bank is doing in the world uneasily and gold is the, is the antidote to that. But at the same time, I think there's huge selling pressures because of margin calls and portfolio rebalancing. I mean, if, if gold is supposed to be X percent of your portfolio and the entire rest of your portfolio is going down, there's a rebalancing where you're like, okay, I want to decrease my allocation to gold. And so there's this seemingly relentless selling pressure, which has overmatched the buying pressure. I think the selling pressure is going to be of limited duration, but the buying pressure is there. And so once the selling pressure is over, boom, you know, the next wave.
All right, I, I've got just a couple more questions. Brent Johnson walks by, we're at the New Orleans Investment Conference, and Brent is obviously big on this dollar milkshake theory with the DXY going higher, other currencies kind of falling in comparison. What do you think about that? Are we going to see the DXY continue to rise? Is there going to be a quick kind of turnaround there, or what do you think? He's definitely had a good year with the thesis, no question. Uh, I think the real test for the dollar is whether this rally has been just an interest rate differential thing where the Fed's been more aggressive than everybody else. Right. And has it benefited against the euro because of the, the energy crisis in Europe? And for those two reasons. The reason why I say that is because if you look at the dollar against the Brazilian real and the Mexican peso, for example, uh, those currencies have traded great against the dollar. That's because their central banks were actually much earlier in raising interest rates in the Fed and have been much more aggressive. They've also benefited as commodity currencies. So that tells me, yeah, that those two factors are really the only reason why the dollars rallied. So once we get close to the end of the Fed tightening, at the same time other central banks are still aggressively raising, then that's the end of the dollar rally. And really it was just as simple as that. It wasn't anything else. It was just those two factors. And if Europe can somehow get through the winter without any further damage and pain with respect to energy prices, uh, then maybe the, the euro then uh, ha has its bounce. So uh, I, I think that the dollar big picture structurally is still um, challenged, but um, I, I think it's really just as simple as that with the dollar rally and really nothing more. It's not like the dollar's just great shakes. It's just getting those flows for those reasons. And, but my theory will be put to the test when the Fed's almost done uh, raising interest rates. Keith, what about you? Dollar milkshake, DXY, do we see it going higher? You know, it's, it's very hard to say in the short term, does DXY go higher? It seems like it's kind of hit that point, maybe overextended and, you know, due for correction for sure. Longer term, you know, to say you're bearish on the DXY is to say you're bullish on the euro. And I just, I just can't quite go there. I mean, as messed up as the dollar is and the management of the dollar in the U.S. government, when you look at Europe, you know, the mess is bigger. So kind of cleanest, dirty shirt. The other point that I always like to make is that the other currencies are all dollar derivatives. So in a certain sense, how can the derivatives really structurally outperform the underlying? And there's, there's a point at which that starts to matter. You know, as, as you really tip into the final bust of the whole system, then all the peripheral stuff gets wiped out and the, and the dollar becomes the only thing. I don't think we're at that point. So I think we go to another cycle and, you know, uh, repeat. Peter, what do you I, I just need to add also the dollar's obviously rallied against the yen because of yield curve control. Right. That's a perfect example of, of an interest rate differential and a differential between central banks. If we wake up one day and the Bank of Japan decides to widen the YCC band or at least get rid of it, well, then the yen is going to have a rip-your-face-off rally against the dollar. Right. So uh, getting back to my point of this is just an interest rate differential thing. Well, I've got one more question for you, but before we go, uh, where can people find your work? You're obviously really in tune with the markets. You've got some great insights. Where can people find some of more of your work? So I write daily on the macro uh, economic and market picture, and that's at bookreport.com, B-O-O-C-K report.com. And I'm the CIO and portfolio manager at Bleakly Financial Group, and you can learn about us at bleakly.com. All right, well, I got one more question for you, Peter. We're at the New Orleans Investment Conference, so what is the best investment advice that you've ever received, and what can you tell us about markets right now? Uh, I don't think there's one best investment advice that I've received. I, I think the, a lot of the investment advice that, that someone learns is from their own mistakes. Mm. 
and yes, you need to, to read and learn, and, but it's, it's how you adjust your own uh, mistakes and try to repeat them less going forward. Well, hopefully no more mistakes in 2022 and beyond. Peter, it's been awesome having you and hopefully see you again. Thank you, Ben, same. That's all for us here in New Orleans. Thanks, Peter, thanks, Keith, and we'll see you soon. This episode was brought to you by Monetary Metals. Monetary Metals is a different kind of gold company. Others buy and sell gold. Monetary Metals operates the Gold Yield Marketplace, a platform of products that offer a yield on gold paid in gold to investors and institutions. And our gold financing simplified. Reliable financing denominated in gold with a built-in hedge for gold-using and gold-producing businesses. To learn more, visit www.monetary-metals.com. See you next time.